0: Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses one through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything,
1: The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Ethan, and uh, before we get started, I just wanted to quickly introduce myself. I am serving as the intern at Graceway this year, uh, and I'm in my second year at Princeton Seminary. I do think it's important to let you know that I'm originally from California, which uh, I've also heard referred to as the place that shall not be named, but I like to call it God's favorite state. (laughs) I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting more of you in the coming months, and I'm really excited about being a part of the work that Graceway is doing. So with all that being said, let's get to the text. In Pastor Dave's sermon from last week, the Israelites had left the land of Egypt after hundreds of years of terrible conditions, and were crossing the Red Sea, or maybe some other body of water with Pharaoh's army right on their heels. After successfully getting away from the Egyptians, Moses led Israel through the desert of Shur to a place called Marah, which is also the word for bitter in Hebrew. It was here that through following God's instruction, bitter water became drinkable. And later, as they were moving through the Desert of Sin, which is uh, referring to a geographical area rather than the concept of sin. It was here that the Israelites, once again, in thinking that the grass is greener on the other side, complained to Moses and said in Exodus 16 that they would have rather died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt with slightly fuller stomachs than to die from hunger in the desert where they were. But God provided bread and meat for his people to sustain them. From there, in chapter 17, we have the story of God telling Moses to strike a rock to give the Israelites water, after they complained that they would die of thirst. But eventually, they get to Mount Sinai. Now I know that was a very quick summary and there is a lot in there, but any one of the events in chapters 15 through 19 of Exodus could use their own sermon, so we will continue on. As I said, eventually the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai and this is where the text for today comes in. To repeat a bit of the Wednesday word from a few weeks ago, The Ten Commandments are one of the most well-known parts of the Bible. It is so well-known that the idea of a set of unbreakable rules has worked its way into pop culture. For example, some of you may be familiar with the 1999 movie Fight Club that is also very well-known for having a specific set of rules. The most famous of these rules are the First Rule, you do not talk about Fight Club. And the second rule, you do not talk about Fight Club. There are also the rules of engagement within the military. There's the Pirate's Code from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, as well as rules for playing sports, for practicing medicine, for driving, and almost all other parts of life. So, rules and codes are things that we are all familiar with in one way or another. But the Ten Commandments are not just any normal set of rules. They are part of a covenant between God and the people. Now, covenant can sound like a very serious and official word, but it is helpful to talk about what it is, especially when talking about this passage because covenants are not simply sets of rules or promises or contracts. What distinguishes them from those other things is that a covenant is grounded in a relationship. This relationship between God and the people is one that has been in existence with all of creation since the story of Noah in the early part of the book of Genesis. And it is also a key moment in Abram's story. In Genesis 15, as God is giving Abram the promises of receiving descendants in a land that they will come into, God then says to him, know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there. And they shall be oppressed for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. In the text for today in Exodus 20, God directly calls back to this when saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this reminds the descendants of Abram of the enduring relationship with their God and it points to important aspects of covenant relationships, which are grace and loyalty. The grace of God to the Israelites during their time in the wilderness, throughout all that they complain about to Moses and against God, shows an unmatchable level of grace on God's part. And the same goes for God's loyalty to the covenant that was made from the time of Noah persisting through the centuries of slavery and to the arrival at Mount Sinai. Now what God says before the actual commandment in verse two is what's known as the prologue of the 10 Commandments. And that is where we'll start with this first part of it. I am the Lord your God. Patrick Miller, who is an Old Testament scholar and former professor at Princeton Seminary, notes that the identity is relational. The phrase, your God, is reiterated so much in the commandments that it almost becomes a part of the name, and it is clearly part of the identity. If any of you have older siblings that you're, you're close in age with, then you may understand this sentiment. Uh, My older brother and I were one school year apart in age, and uh, with him being much more popular than I was, I could not tell you how many times that I was referred to as Tim's brother, Ethan. I remember hearing it so much that there were many times I felt like that was actually my name. But, As Miller mentioned, the repeated use of the phrase, your God, is an intentional and significant choice meant to emphasize the relationship that the God of Israel has with his people. Before going further, I want to give a quick disclaimer. Uh, Even though we read all of the Commandments for today, uh, I want to let you know that we're not going to go through all of them unless everyone wants to be here when it gets dark. In fact, today we're just going to talk about the first two. But discussing the first commandment gives us a lot to work with because as many biblical scholars have noted, the rest of the commandments flow out of this first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this, I think, is a very understandable thing for God to say. After all, the words that came before this are basically one singular thought that describes a feature of God's identity. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And in addition to delivering them from slavery, God had also provided bread and meat and water to the people while they were in the wilderness. So it makes sense for God to demand loyalty from the people and to tell them, you shall have no other gods before me. Scholars have noted how in Hebrew, the phrase before me is al panay And the meaning is a little ambiguous with that. It could mean in front of me, alongside me, instead of me, or against me. And when you look at the other ways that the phrase before me can be translated, it can help to cultivate a more God-centered mindset compared to a God-first mindset. I know those sound very similar, and uh, if you have heard this before, please bear with me, but if you have not, please allow me to explain. A God-first mindset definitely sounds nice and something that we should all strive to have. However, one of the issues with a God-first mindset is that it can turn our relationship with God into another item on our checklist. It can become something like, all right, I prayed this morning or I went to church today, so I'm done working on my relationship with God for the day, and now I'm going to do whatever I want. As one might guess, a God-centered mindset puts God and our relationship with Him at the center. The difference here is that our, our relationship with God doesn't become a checklist item, but rather like the sun in our solar system or the nucleus of an atom that everything else revolves around. For the people of Israel, God gave them this commandment for the flourishing of a relationship that already exists and to keep that at the center. Similarly for us, with all the tasks and errands that we all have to do each day and week, it can be very easy to get into this checklist mindset. And this commandment can be an incredibly helpful resource for the centering and flourishing of our own relationship with God. For the second commandment, I think it's easy to see how it connects to the first. In Exodus 20, verses four and five, it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. I think a question hidden in this commandment is, what would they even make an image of God from? After all, while the Israelites had definitely seen miraculous things happening through Moses, Moses had been very clear that the miracles were coming from God and not from him. So there is still no visual image of God that the Israelites would have seen. And just like the use of the phrase, your God, this absence of an image is intentional. But still, it doesn't take the people long to break these first two commandments in a very, very clear way. Chapter 20, where we are now, all the way to chapter 32, take place on the top of Mount Sinai, where God is giving Moses laws for the people. In Exodus 32, after Moses had been on the mountaintop for 40 days, The people who were following Aaron's leadership melted down their gold, made a golden calf, planned a festival, and presented offerings and sacrifices to this new idol that they just made. From where we're at right now and what we just talked about, it would be easy to spend the rest of the time pointing out and criticizing how quickly and easily The Israelites made mistakes. I know that I've heard multiple sermons or reflections do exactly that, and you may have heard those messages as well, but that is not where I am planning to go next. Instead, I want to look at our own lives in connection with these first two commandments. Because while the Israelites did make a golden idol and break the first two commandments, I believe that there's something to be said about failing in a very obvious way. I don't think that there is really any wiggle room here to argue that they did not put another god first and make an idol out of it. But with such clear failure also comes a clear sense of how one can move forward. Because part of knowing where to go, or what to do in life, is knowing where not to go, or what not to do. And this kind of knowledge can be much harder to come by for us today. I'm going to take a wild guess here and say that most of us do not make golden idols but that does not mean we're exempt from making idols in other ways. Maybe it's money, or success, or having an impressive job, or a perfect family. But if, if or when we make idols of intangible things, it can be a lot harder for us to realize. We do, after all, live in a visual culture that is full of symbols that we encounter on a daily basis. And symbols, by definition, represent something else. So although we may not be literally bowing down to or worshipping these symbols, the more of our lives that they take up, the closer and closer to being at the, they, they become to being at the center of our lives. And despite it originating it in a different context, the second commandment guides us to not make idols in any form, which helps us to keep God as the focal point in and of our lives. To close here, I will tell you that uh, in thinking about this sermon, I had met with one of my professors this week who had brought up this idea of house rules. He had said that most households have house rules in some form or another. Sometimes they might be in writing and framed on the wall and other times they may just be unspoken. But he said that the purpose of house rules is to foster the well-being of those within the house. And the same goes for these commandments. God gives us the Ten Commandments to keep us in relationship with Him and with each other. Just like you may have certain rules in your house, like don't throw things at your brother or sister's head, or always wash your hands after you you use the bathroom, the rules, though they may sound obvious, are for our well-being. While other rules, like don't try to jump off the roof into the pool, still leave us a lot of room to live our lives. But as I mentioned at the beginning, of the, uh, the Ten Commandments are not simply a list of things to do or not do just because. As you think about the Ten Commandments in the future, I encourage you to keep in mind that they are relational boundaries, meant for our well-being, and that these boundaries are to help us flourish in a right relationship with God. I hope that you see the 10 Commandments as much more than a set of unbreakable rules. I hope that you can see them like a compass that we were given meant to continually lead us back to God who is our center and deserves to be there. Amen.